0: to Bad Impressions, the good podcast about bad digital media things. Today, I'm joined as usual with my good. co-hosts, David Shola and Lee Elliott, and our guests, Zach and Mark from Adelaide. I'll let them introduce themselves.
1: I'm Mark Oldeman. I'm the CEO of Adelaide, and uh, psyched to be here.
2: I'm Zach Kubin. I'm the head of sales at Adelaide as well. Equally psyched to be here. Randy, I'm getting live
3: tweets from our legal department that you called our podcast good. Um, We're either going to (laughs) have to fix that in post or face a serious amount of lawsuits. And they've informed me the lawsuits will be at you because we don't have an LLC. Well,
0: I don't know. I've seen those 12 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. So,
3: Anyway, a big day today, inauguration. And I think what a lot of people in digital media are focused on is that it'll probably be a different regulatory environment. A lot's already kind of rolling, uh, or at least appears to be in motion. Uh, Mark, Zach, do you have any particular view, optimism, pessimism, third way-inism about what a Biden presidency really means for digital media regulation?
1: I think there's probably two impacts. One is that uh, maybe we'll see federal privacy legislation, which while it seems bad superficially is probably a good thing for consistency's sake. So probably some sort of federal privacy stuff happening. And then maybe some sort of antitrust stuff, which would be good for independent ad tech. That would be an interesting outcome.
3: Speaking of the the federal instrument, specifically, Mark, for, you know, you're, you're definitely going to have the people who still have that. I love the laboratories of liberty and and want state-level solutions. Funny how the liberty labs usually cook up racism experiments, but do you think that CCPA or anything in California or anything internationally is a particularly good existing model, or do we need to do something unique and new federally?
1: I think the only thing that matters in in any privacy legislation is defaults. If it's a default opt-out or default opt-in, that's the only thing that is really like going to have any meaning in the long run. So given that CCPA is opt-out, I think that if the government were to make it opt-in, then that would that would probably be worse for people's privacy.
3: Zach, do you have any ideas for cracking this deplatforming question, which is huge? As someone who's seen hundreds of Twitter accounts I love go down time and time again. So it, it really does touch every piece of the political spectrum. Do you have any particular thoughts on either the people who say that if the First Amendment truly doesn't apply to this at all, it's virtually meaningless in the digital age? Do you think this has a clear solution?
2: I hope they they don't do sort of deplatforming writ large. I'm getting an awful lot of joyful schadenfreude about watching the QAnon guys lose their shit this morning about Biden being sworn in. But the prospect that unchecked large multinational organizations like Facebook and Twitter wield the control over who gets to post what on their platforms is, is a concern. Angela Merkel said it herself that sure in an isolated sense, taking Trump off of Twitter makes sense. But who makes the decision? What's the framework of making the decision? I think it's inevitable that the government at some point is going to want to have a say in how these decisions get made. As far as what this means for ad tech, I, I don't know. you know I don't know. Where this ends. Uh, I don't know what the legislation could potentially look like. I don't know who the decision making body would be comprised of. But I have to imagine that organizationally, publicly traded companies like Facebook and like Twitter and like the folks we're talking about here, to wield the power that they do to essentially make judgment calls on who gets to say things on their platform, it's worrisome, right? It, It kind of freaked me out a little bit when I saw the Trump news, albeit I was excited by it because I thought it was going to result in what it did, which is what the time said a 75% reduction in misinformation being posted online. But like, what's the framework that people are using to make this decision? And, and should it lie in the hands of the organizations themselves? Or, or should the government or governments have a say in, in who gets to, to put stuff on these platforms?
4: As someone who had to, you know, experience and, and help kind of teach a communication law class via graduate school. But one of the things that really becomes interesting and where we're, we're platforms like social media kind of have evolved and changed is you have two diametrically opposed kind of positions, or at least I do, in terms of the power in which they wield. Everyone has a right to stand on the sidewalk and espouse whatever they want in terms of it's actually, you know, truthful or it's crazy. You can fall in between between, and you can make that own assessment um, and you can like walk on by and, and you know pass on through uh, as you need. What isn't protected is the ability that uh, if I wanted to make some statement and you had a megaphone, you don't have to give me that megaphone for me to make that message. Adding another complexity in terms of that is social media has kind of grown beyond itself in terms of it is now the sidewalk in terms of uh, where people stand up and uh, express their, their thoughts, opinions, concerns, whatever, it does go unchecked, uh, much like the street corner does. Uh, And that's kind of where Section 230 kind of really comes in and kind of becomes something that was maybe potentially good in principle. But as soon as platforms like Facebook, Twitter, I mean, all of them start to create an algorithm, they now become a publisher, uh, because they're taking an editorial position, while not a specific position, they're taking a position for monetization in terms of having you consume more content on their platform. So I think that there is something that needs to be done in terms of how they start to think about uh, and address this for, from a governmental standpoint. I think that any of these entities should be able to, in a micro like, position, that they should be able to like, kick off uh, anyone that like, violates their terms and services. But then they also then have the power uh, to suppress, because of how big and strong they are now, in terms of public discourse, which is now like the larger looming problem. Yeah, I think there, there's a lot in terms of that that kind of needs to be un, unpacked and, and thought about. Uh, I think 230 doesn't need to be repealed. I think it needs to be reevaluated. Or I think Facebook and Google and all the other social platforms really don't qualify for that because they are publishers, uh, because they have an algorithmic feed. I think that needs to also be really analyzed. And I think. One of the issues and one of the problems with our lawmakers is they don't understand this stuff. Painting in broad strokes here, but like it's it's not something that they fully understand. Uh, ad tech is something like relatively new in terms of like the world. And um, I think that that's, you know, one of the elements that kind of makes this kind of like really interesting and sticky. I
3: think an algorithm is a position as a congressional testimony clip worthy statement on that.
4: Well, yeah. And I think what, you know, what everyone likes to forget about is like these algorithms aren't machines. Like they're, they're human informed. They're written by humans. They are coded, So they have bias in them, which then means they have editorial power. Like that is like the crux in terms of if you're not a publisher, then how do you have editorial power? If you want to go back to just a chronological feed, then I think they could be protected in terms of we're not a publisher. We're just reposting what people do, but that would cost, Facebook and all the other like uh, a, a lot of revenue in terms of you know they're they're trying to get around cognitive dissonance again now gives them editorial content uh, and they're now a publisher so
3: every engagement is a letter to the editor in this situation kind of it's just now trillions of letters to the editors a day. Speaking of technology that not a ton of people understand, that is being heralded as something that might fix everything, but probably won't. Big, big week for all things crypto. Bad week for crypto fascists, obviously, but uh, cryptocurrency and and other things, you know, having having a big week. Blockchain, it's back.
1: So I, I think that most most of the people in advertising who two or three years ago were trying to Position their solution as blockchain or crypto, uh, we're putting a round peg through a square hole. It, it, or, or it was like someone said today, shooting the fly with a bazooka. You do not need a blockchain to track everybody's take rate, you don't need it to help prevent fraud. The only thing blockchains are really good for is for having a, the ownership of a digital asset known among a group of people without a central party to sort of keep a a single ledger so when if you have a digital asset that you want to trade without intermediaries then blockchains are good if you know then that's what most cryptocurrencies are personally i thought the promise for blockchain and digital media was to create a futures market right where people could trade the right to advertise against people in the future Uh, but the problem is that with most futures contracts you need really really specific definitions of value And I think that one of the things that Zach and I work on a lot is the fact that there are no specific definitions of value in digital advertising today. So that's why the whole market is really devolving into SPOT, which makes it not a good fit for blockchain.
3: And there are other methods. I don't know what they're up to these days, but I, you know, years ago when NYAX, N-Y-I-A-X, I think that's how you pronounce it, came out, you know, David and I were, were pretty interested in that. It was intriguing. We never ended up doing anything with them in the, the interest of full transparency, but that was an operations and timing thing. It was someone conveyed to me in a way that I thought was pretty convincing when we were talking about what is ever the potential value for certain ad spots that theoretically could never be traded programmatically, and we use the classic example of Super Bowl ads. You know, on what planet could that ever be done? And I learned that this person in their organization were interested in the programmatic trading of that value, which which was intriguing.
1: TV does have sort of a futures market with upfronts, right? There's there's yeah. not a lot of liquidity, and people aren't trading those contracts. But TV has a far more uniform unit of measure than digital does, right? Like a GRP in TV or an, or an impression in TV is far more consistent than in digital. And so I, I think it's probably better suited today for some sort of distributed uh, system where you're trading the, those contracts than, than digital is. I mean, NYX was, was, was going down the right path, right? I think they, they got a little bit too heady with the whole like we're powered by NASDAQ and like you know that, that kind of stuff, but they were definitely uh, one of the only people heading in the right direction.
3: It's interesting whenever people get into that territory that is, to your point, either a little too conflationary with financial markets or tries to trade too heavily on that credit. And my bias is that I was taught a lot of digital media initially by people who came from the hedge fund trading space, but very specifically were like, this is very different than that. Anyone who tells you paid search is like the stock market, you need to show the door which is interesting because there's this book out that I won't read that might actually be good, but The Subprime Attention Crisis. Great title, but I just like, again, I have this bias that anytime anyone's like, it's like the Wolf of Wall Street, but the wolves are online. You know, I automatically like flip over in my chair, (laughs)
1: like, just like, no. I'm definitely guilty of that, but.
3: (laughs) No, it's, everyone is, I will pull that out when it suits me, absolutely. I, I don't think the ad, the industry's first brush with all things, you know, ledger and crypto yielded any sort of home run. I mean, we still have the problems.
2: One of the things that I found, because we were doing blockchain for a little while and admittedly probably got a little bit over our skis, the receptivity of the audience that we would talk to was incredibly high. Mark and I would go on roadshows and we would talk to agencies ad nauseum about the promise of blockchain, and they would just be We want to do blockchain, we want to do blockchain. But nobody knew what the hell they were talking about. Nobody knew what the application was, nobody knew why they needed it. It was because some client somewhere said blockchain and because the agencies were just trained to chase after their own tail, we would find ourselves in the position of pitching solutions to agencies that had no idea what to use it for. So uh, I'm curious to see if there is truly an opportunity for blockchain to take hold in the market. And I'm not casting any aspersions on Amino or anybody else, But the current applications, the way in which it's being bandied about the market, at least it was a couple of years ago, didn't make any sense. It just added more complexity, which frankly helped agencies. Agencies like complexity because it keeps them entrenched in their position with respect to their relationship with their clients. The simpler things become, the less the need for agencies to exist. So if anything, I think, sure, there was a need on the part of agencies to understand what blockchain meant, but we never really felt like the agencies themselves, at least the folks we were talking to really wanted to fundamentally apply this to a problem. They just wanted to kind of understand it so they could be prepared to to answer a client question whenever it came up.
1: I mean, there was definitely a few agencies that we were working with who were game to set up futures markets. And and we, we ran a few campaigns where we were actually swapping tokens that represented the right to advertise or really the right for consumer attention. There was a large part of the market that was in it for the shiny, new, buzzy thing but there was definitely a few folks who really got the long-term potential of a liquid futures market.
2: This is when Mark takes my blustering sales guy shtick and he goes, well, hold on. Actually, Zach's wrong on 80% of what he just said. Let me just clarify a lot of that for the sake of the business.
4: Yeah, but there is still a lot of credibility in in your sentiment and statement in terms of a lot of the agency people are really just trying to dangle the carrot with the, you know, that's diamond encrusted and the pretty shiny thing in front of their client and or their internal, you know, own uh, leadership or in terms of, hey, we can get potentially an award out of this, you know, kind of thing and, and really like chase this and PR and spin the hell out of it in terms of, you know, some real buzzwordy press release. And when you really get down to the meat and potatoes of how this was executed, it's slapped together and really like ambiguous in terms of the actual impact and those kind of things. But they checked the box and they did the thing and they got the pat on the back for it, you know, and there's a ton of that that kind of happens when these kind of elements like roll into the marketplace. And that's just kind of the song and dance that goes along with it.
2: Look, I worked at, at agencies for seven years. I was probably guilty. Of a lot of this stuff. Client says you do something, you do it. Two stories that I want to convey. One is I knew that we had reached sort of like a bubble or at least peak enthusiasm or a frothy market on interest in blockchain. We, we went into an agency's office and we logged into their Wi-Fi and we were set to give them a 101 on blockchain and the password to the Wi-Fi was blockchain. So something no. there didn't make any sense to me. I was like, hold on a second. You guys are enthusiastic about that, but you want a 101 on this. When you leave meetings like that, you literally feel like Steve Carell's character in the big short walking around the condo development in Miami, in Florida. You're looking around, you're saying, who is, who is funding this stuff? Where is this actually going? You just know that the fix is in. You know that the market is way too frothy for what it's actually looking for. And inevitably what you found was what is the, the trough of disillusionment? What's the, the that, that graph that everybody gets really excited and then all of a sudden reality sets in and the market crashes? I'm not saying the blockchain market ever crashed, but the market moved on to something else. And I don't know if blockchain ever sort of fundamentally solved any systemic problems for, for the business that we work on.
0: I'm curious from your perspective, Zach, if it was ever easier or different in what ways trying to sell that to agency relationships versus clients who were doing in-house type of things sure. or more direct things because I totally understand the sentiment of like, oh, you want to know about this one word? And oh, here, I got you something shiny, so.
2: I can give you a sense of that question around blockchain. I can also talk about the current business one, right? Mark and I talk about attention a lot, right? Attention is sort of like an of the moment term. And I think it actually is a meaningful position in, in the zeitgeist right now. I think people are genuinely trying to understand what attention means. So when you were affiliated your organization with a certain word, which inevitably is what happens, right? When we're at Parsec, people just think rich media, right? Like it's inevitable you're just going to get bucketed into a thing, right? So when Mark and I worked on the blockchain project, it was that, oh, the Parsec guys are doing blockchain and then we want to be educated on it, right? So the question that I always had was was whenever we go in the meeting, which was, we thought we had a business that would work, right? The, the exchange of a shared understanding of an asset between a buyer and a seller for all the reasons that blockchain could essentially reduce a lot of the overhead in, in creating liquidity in a market like that made sense but standing up that market just never really kind of took shape when we would talk to agencies there was genuine interest but it was never clear to us like where this was going to go and to mark's point there were a few agencies that actually did have fundamental understanding of how this could work it was just tough to scale but when we would talk to brands about this and we didn't talk to a lot of in-house brands about blockchain specifically it was mostly just to sort of pique their interest. I'll give you a good example. We were talking to a client in the banking sector, a large investment bank. It was a big client of ours at the time. They wanted us to come in there and give them a blockchain seminar. Now, I don't believe that there was ever an opportunity for them to adopt blockchain transactions and how they trade on digital media. What I actually thought was going on was that people in the financial arm of the business were talking about blockchain and the media folks just wanted to get educated on it. Now, We do that as a part of being good partners, but the long-term viability of building a solution like that just never really felt like it ever went anywhere.
3: Honestly, uh, Mark, Zach, and I started communicating more about all things general media matters was at the height of the summer's protests, principally around Black Lives Matter, but a number of movements and the subsequent fallout of the impact of the brand safety industrial complex and how it impacted where advertising dollars were going during this time and to what ends and purposes. They were flowing. And I think we have a variety of perspectives, but uh, Mark, or Zach, do you do you, you just want to kick it off and sort of summarize the principal problem around the notion of brand safety and what advertisers are doing and how it impacts journalism, the web, and everything in a way that even affects the layperson.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think the principal problem is that there's no problem. I don't think anybody has ever proven that there has been a negative outcome for a brand because they've advertised next to content that might be considered salacious on a premium publisher. I think there's definitely cases of advertisers who have had their ads shown up on sort of long tail or extremist websites, and the people at uh, Sleeping Giants and and Branded do, did a great job calling them out for that. But the problem is that, you don't need a several hundred million dollar ad tech startup to tell you that you should just advertise on premium sites. Like that, that's not a product. So if you want to make a brand safety product, you have to scare people into thinking there's actually a problem with your ad showing up next to an article about a protest in the New York Times. Or even what, what I saw this summer, which was so horrible, was like the front page of the New York Times had clouds on it, had the, the blocking creative on it, which is just doesn't make any sense. And I don't think that a lot of people who are actually building this technology understand the incentives that it creates. I don't think that the people who are signing off on its use understand how it's actually being implemented. There's a big problem in this industry where people don't understand incentives and the outcomes from incentives.
2: Nobody wants to be the person that has to answer the phone call for the CMO as to why is my ad running on this page, right? This page, insert where it shouldn't be here. And I think, to Mark's point, there are easy ways to solve that problem by being responsible buyers of media. Too much of the market has made the incorrect assumption that all reach is created equal, which has created a whole long tail opportunity to essentially buy reach that's super cheap, but running in really sketchy parts of the internet. And so I think what marketers are are still failing to realize is the idea that the reach that they're buying in digital is indeed inconsistent. A tiny little ad versus a very big ad don't always mean the same things as reach, but serving somebody an ad in a premium environment like the New York Times versus a really crappy environment, publisher like a Breitbart, for instance, there's a massive dissonance between the overall effectiveness of that media and what it means to the consumer. Right, So when we talk about things like brand safety, there's a lot more stuff that's wrapped up into that. To Mark's point, we've always said, hey, if you're a brand and you're worried about brand safety, just set up PMPs with all the publishers that you trust and just transact that way, or just buy directly from the people that you wanna buy from. And the same thing goes for fraud, right? When you set up the incentives for things like stupid metrics that are not rooted in any sort of correlation to an outcome for the business, you inevitably get really unfortunate head experiences that do nothing to drive the business of the advertiser and only serve the needs of lining the pockets of the publisher, right? So if you create incentives around a metric like a video complete, for instance, you get thumbnail video players that just play on the bottom right corner of your page that my mom sends me screenshots of and says, is this what you do for a living? Now, no, the answer to that question is that's not what I do for a living. But the inevitability of that is that brands get put in those environments that are bad Publishers get paid because they're just gaming the metric and nobody really wins. It's really unfortunate.
4: Brand safety is bullshit in terms of it's only a digital thing. That's the only thing that anyone really matters because it can be measured and tracked in some conceivable way. We talk about ad adjacency, and I bring it up all the time, is that like, I, I agree with you, Mark. There is no quantifiable study of negative affinity to a brand based off of the ad adjacency that it had on, on a potentially negative topic. On top of that, it negates the entire portion of the digital like, marketing stack of social media and feed-based marketing. No one gives a damn in terms of where their social media ads show up in adjacent to whatever's going on in some, someone's social media post. It's only something that the digital marketers running in the programmatic space really have to contest with and defend like, the, the way that they buy media. Another element that I always get on my soapbox and discuss was the industry itself potentially has moved into this audience-based marketing in terms of contextual based marketing or, or the position. you know there's a lot of conversations of, well, I went to this website and I saw their ad was there. Why was it there? I'm like, well, because you're in our audience. There's a lot of that. And so like, yeah, you should get away from like the sites that do bad things. Yeah, that's the table stakes at this point in time. But in terms of this site is kind of like murky in terms of like, maybe it should, maybe it shouldn't. It was like, well, you're there and you're in our target audience and your money spins. And, you know, in terms of like this transactional world, you're a prime customer. Maybe there needs to be a little bit more curtailing of that, or maybe we just need to get away from from audience-based marketing in terms of you've shown signals, you've been to our website, we want to remarket to you, and we'll follow you to the ends of the earth uh, to make sure that we show you an ad to get that last touch attribution. And there could be a ton of all these kind of conversations that all fold into the same kind of scenario in terms of everything's connected in digital marketing, and it all sucks, uh, and that's why there's bad impressions out there, and we created this podcast. And third, it's that brand safety is a client services. I've just paused ads that I I take this personal stance that I don't think brand safety really matters. And I paused ads because it'll make my clients happy. Something bad happens, you pause ads. I don't see any end in sight because it's pretty entrenched.
0: That's interesting in the sense of, I know I said this to some of you guys earlier, but like this never occurred to me before I worked in digital media and I went through site lists of programmatic inventory and was like, oh, I guess we got to remove all these things or blacklist all these keywords. Whereas when I read the news or I'm not even, you know, noticing the ads and I'm not saying, oh, wow, this ad for product X on this New York Times article about the pandemic means that they support COVID or whatever. It's like trying to figure out are we preaching to the wrong people? Because like you said, David, it really is about getting that call from the person at the top. And it's like, you don't, you want to please the client, but is it going to affect what the consumers are saying? I don't yeah, think Yeah. Speaking,
4: so. speaking of blacklists, I'm about to probably you know, put myself on one right now. Brand safety and the credence that we give to it as a little over the top potentially in just terms of how much impact does one digital ad actually have? Putting so much weight on this one ad on this one bad story, one you know topic. You know, I think that's a little ludicrous in terms of you know one
0: person seeing it. Whereas you know, if you think about the mediums that you said you know aren't criticized for brand safety, print and TV and radio, like older traditional media, that's something more where I'd be like, oh, multiple people are seeing this and it's associated with that brand versus on digital because you're in that audience, you could be the only person seeing that ad on that article on that site.
1: Well, well here, here's the thing with traditional media adjacency to news is just cheaper right it's not like people it's all blocked and no one buys it but the problem in digital is that there, there's no nuance in quality in digital it's either viewable or not viewable brand safe or not brand safe so there's no sort of nuance and value, and that's because of another problem caused by these verification vendors when, like Zach alluded to, they convinced everybody that every viewable impression was equal, right? Once an impression is viewable, you don't got to worry about it anymore. Well, that, that meant that the market could inflate the number of impressions available to infinity, and therefore, there's no downside. There's, there's, no, there's no opportunity cost to, to, to blocking the premium sites because you can always get your spend and you can always get your reach on these long tail of sites. And you know the, the other irony is that the incentive that's created by blocking on programmatic and where it's measurable is you do push dollars to those wall gardens where it's not measurable and, and the adjacency is much worse. So instead of being next to a New York Times article about a vaccine for COVID, you're next to somebody who's prattling on about Trump and QAnon and like what they've read on 4chan.
3: It's a racist uncle PMP. <laughs> Like it's, it's a PMP directly to racist uncle content. Like it, 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 there's no good content on social. Like I would have loved to sit down, sat down with the head of winning a lot of marketing award hardware for general electric and just scrolled with them through my Twitter feed and said, when you see a good place to insert an ad, you know, say something we'd have been there for five hours. It would have just been like, no, no oh god no please please i can't anymore and it also it's funny because this was in a time in an environment where everyone is getting way too hot on personalization way too hot mm-hmm. you know like and that's a topic we've covered on this podcast a lot like i have a personalized curated feed of what i want to see on twitter if all that content is too bad to put an ad in that's like a wholesale rejection of the personalized media that i've curated it's this like strange loggerheads between like all the content I look at, I want to be unacceptable to brands and a personalized experience to me, you know, is probably a branding nightmare, but the the content on social in the past that's gotten has been unbelievable. I think there's a basic initiative to try and look at that. Now we actually have an upcoming guest who I, I think is pretty involved in it. although I'm not sure if the state of it. So they, they might fill us in on that, but, Again, as you said, Mark, it's, it's a terrible incentive problem because people don't understand the incentives of, of any players involved.
1: And here's where it's going to get worse, right? Because their, their answer to all this criticism is we're going to start using AI, right? Like we're going to solve all of these complaints that you have with AI. Some of the best designed AI and architected AI gets racist. That's just the, the, the nature of, of what happens when you train a system with, with humans. It brings out their sort of latent racism if you spent the last year training an algorithm that Black Lives Matter content was blockable and, and pandemic content was blockable, you are now training the algorithm that any social justice movement does, doesn't deserve to be monetized, any public health movement doesn't, be deser- doesn't deserve to be monetized. And there's no question that these companies are not good at technology. They spent seven years selling a brand safety solution that was blocking based on URL keywords. I mean, it's bonkers that they were able to, to get away with selling this thing. One of my favorite examples is that, well, let's just say Huffington Post, uh, where the mobile portion of the website was using all alphanumeric URLs, which meant that it was 100% brand safe. Meanwhile, you had publishers that weren't gaming the, the system this way, and, and they were demonetized, right? So these these guys are not technologists. And and it's a I think it's a fundamental risk. To the the free uh, distribution of information and in the, in the free press, that they're being allowed to put, uh, ostensibly police the content that's being published. You want to talk about deplatforming? These guys have deplatformed some of the most important journalists in, in the country just because they've decided that their algorithm has categorized the content in a way that is technically not brand safe.
4: Any CMO would cower in the corner if you get enough of them kind of collective. And we had this conversation with them. like, you all are fundamentally destroying the free press and the digital world by diverting all of your money that would go towards any of these credible institutions of journalism. Uh, and you're, you're not throwing your money there. And they're having to evolve and adapt. And put paywalls up and those kind of things. And that's not going well in terms of the consumers expecting their, their content on, on the web to mostly be free. And it's not because there's not enough ads being ads to, to support the you know those those platforms, and which is, you know, terrible.
1: The saving grace here might be this sort of movement around evidence-based marketing, right? Because if people take evidence-based approaches to things, they're going to start to look at what, what is the actual impact of media. On the New York Times that's being rated as as not brand safe. And chances are it probably still works. And which which means that if the market is has bad data and is shifting their spend elsewhere, that there's an opportunity to get outsized returns from buying that media.
3: Which is a huge opportunity, and someone should be lauded for taking. But here's where I'm gonna to get to. I think there's there's two other existing problems, and I'll start with the one that I think is more related. One particular example where and this is obviously all off record but i was in direct contact with the people managing the brand safety settings for a large brand and they were absolutely still blocking all of it the entire time after their cmo came out and and took a big stand around it and i think this is where in the advertising industry i want to redefine good faith bad faith if this had been exposed the cmo would have said oh look at this huge complex organization in between me and what happens on the ground I didn't come up in programmatic media. I'm a CMO. Obviously I didn't, you know, like I i was the last person in the glossy magazine print ad department. And that's why I look so good and I dress so well and I'm a CMO and I have horrible little gremlins who do all this for me. Like, and it was so complicated and I just couldn't figure it out. And everyone would have said, "Ah, oh, you know, they're so likable. They're so earnest. And they, they just didn't understand that they were absolutely still blocking all the good publishers and they, Put no money where they they didn't understand it was good faith i'm big on flipping it to like this person makes millions of dollars a year they're expected to be an expert that's bad faith negligence like the fact that you did not march down into whatever bullpen this was coming from and say i just went out there and said that we're immediately going to fund this i will sit behind your computer until you do it to me not doing that is full bad faith
2: yeah. There's an accountability problem in marketing, inherently in marketing, right? It's there's we're marketers, right? So very good at telling the story, but backing that up with anything that's meaningful, not so good at that stuff always. And I think that the, where the kind of the rubber meets the road is just on people's obsession with optics, right? The optics of getting up in a room full of reporters as the CMO of a Fortune 500 company are seductive in that, like, we're going to fund this content, but how are you going to hold those people accountable? Well, how are you, How transparent are you going to be as an organization in two months from now showing us, the public, that you actually are investing in this type of content? You're not going to do that. So it's a lot easier to just get in front of a room full of people and tell them you're going to do something, just like you're going to say with all the metrics that people look at, oh, we're going to hit your click-through rate goals. What does that mean to the business? It doesn't mean shit. It just means that we're optimizing or we're managing towards a metric that everybody makes them feel good, and I think that that's that's an inherent issue in the industry.
1: I don't know if we can blame marketers. I, I think that they've that people have been scared about the vagaries of digital and like oh, and like what they don't know, and and they just and they want to be safe, and they've been sold with fear from these brand safety companies. They're being told that like you're going to fund terrorism unless you use our product. Well, just don't advertise on crappy websites and you're not going to fund terrorism. But I, I think that like this kind of change takes a long time. Getting brands to have ethical supply chains took decades, right? But that, but it's finally happening and brands are doing much more ethical sourcing. I think that one of the most ridiculous comments I got when I called these guys out publicly was guns don't kill people, people kill people. Like that was literally one of the reply guys for IAS defending them, saying like, we're just gun manufacturers. You need to blame the brands who are incorrectly using our technology. I thought that was the most ridiculous explanation. These guys have been sold using fear for so long. I think the blame rests squarely on the vendors and and not on the marketers. We're really just trying to be good shepherds for their brand.
3: I think that's fair. And it it points to my second point, which is there's a really bad default position on this stuff in the agency world. That at any agency, if you're the person saying, I don't think this is that big an issue with it with brand safety, I mean, you're a pariah.
0: That rings true very much to me from the agency dynamic verse. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot is how does this translate into a more hyper-performance focused mindset, which I know we've talked about before. We're, you know, using automated bidding to optimize towards certain performance goals. Like, do I care where that person sees the impression? Not really because I'm using audience targeting or I'm using algorithmic targeting to try to find the people most likely to convert. I will say in my recent endeavors, I have been so shocked that no one has even mentioned the words brand safety, but I love it from a laziness perspective, Lee, like you said, but also I just think like, what is the difference? And to your point, Mark, I think you said this earlier of with the walled gardens of like, there is no brand safety on there. And it's like, well, then why are we so hyper aware of this when it comes to programmatic? One of my favorite old Vayner anecdotes and Lee, you were definitely there for this, was coming from working on our team where we were doing mostly search and programmatic buys to then being integrated with teams who had only ever been in Facebook ads manager and putting together the first programmatic plan on our team. And they were like, what is this column for moat fees? What is this column for IAS? What does that mean? Who, what is that? And I just remember going to Lee and being like, you got to help me out here. Like they've never heard of these things because it was so irrelevant. So that's like my biggest thing of why is it so divided? And I feel like David and Lee, I don't know if you have the same like visceral reaction of thinking back to our time where it's like, this was one of those hot ticket items on us that was never, ever brought up for the social type people.
3: Let's, let's talk about quantitatively defining attention.
1: So I I think the first thing to talk about is media's role in, in attention. And when we're using attention metrics as a way of measuring the quality of media, we're taking a little bit of a a creative license, a poetic license. Media's job is to create an opportunity for uninterrupted attention, right? From that point forward, it's really creative's job to capture that attention and then put some sort of assets on it, some sort of brand assets, and then create a memory, which then in the long, long term sort of nudges you to make different decisions. So... When we talk about attention in media, it's really about using metrics which we know are predictive of the of the fact that somebody is going to pay attention and then that somebody is going to not be interrupt not be distracted from the creative that they're looking at. The really great thing about attention metrics and using attention metrics to understand the quality of media is that there is a natural limit. that you cannot inflate attention to infinity if you are, measuring the actual quality of attention that someone's paying to ads there's a, there's a finite amount of attention that each of us are born with right you can't just manufacture out of, out of thin air so i think that there's a huge opportunity to reset those perverted incentives that, that were created by impressions and by completions right you can have unlimited completions and unlimited viewable impressions on a web page but you cannot have unlimited amount of quality attention So if you convince advertisers that they need to pay more for higher quality media, it starts to get us out of this sort of lemon market, right? Because that creates incentives for publishers to to make higher quality placements, which then gives advertisers more opportunity to to, to buy higher higher quality placements. And that kicks off a positive feedback loop that I think will have a positive impact on the industry as a whole.
2: There's also an argument around understanding attention through the lens of outcomes for brands and and i don't mean outcomes as like sales but if you talk to an advertiser that that looks at awareness driving media as a as a goal inevitably you're asking them well what's the kpi well we want to see lift, publisher a can so we can get you lift. well what's what's my kpi uh click-through rates cool what's the relationship between a click-through rate and lift there is none uh okay, why am I optimizing to a metric that has nothing to do with the way in which the business is expecting outcomes from, from this investment? Because that's all we've got, right? And that's th- there's a problem there. There's a problem in how agencies and how their uh, clients are held accountable to buying against a certain metric such that that metric correlates to an outcome. Now, Mark and I happen to think that attention as a proxy for those outcomes is better suited than the existing metrics that brands use like video completes, et cetera, et cetera, because the legacy metrics are not correlated to the outcome and they are, they are inflationary to infinity, as Mark just said. You can get as many viewable ad impressions as you want. It doesn't mean that you're selling more cars or you're selling more yogurt. There is an opportunity for brands to reconsider the metrics that they look at from a media perspective and say, this isn't good enough for my business, what's better, And there might be an opportunity in in, in the case of looking at attention metric, which might be better correlated to the thing that your business cares about.
3: What's been the problem so long as I've worked in digital media for large enterprise brands where you have concurrent DR and concurrent branding happening, is that if there's nothing that can be optimized in a, a fairly regular frequency and there's not strong feedback mechanisms, what can we do? And so I've been a part of a number of digital media buys where, you know, it's just, it's just the old three-month flight in market A, three-month flight in market B. And, the, you know, geez, I, I wouldn't have put David and Randy on this if I'd known that they were just going to set up two campaigns and run them for three months. That's certainly not what we pay them for. It's the right thing to do. I think there's an, an immense need for a digital optimization-friendly scale for meaningful long-term
2: brand building. There's a hunger for for meaningfulness. If I put money into the machine... What am I gonna get in return? A craving for that. And then there's a craving to make that equivalent, right? So if I put money into the machine, which machine should I put money into? Should I give it to DV? Should I give it to programmatic? Should I give it to walled gardens? What should I do, right? And, and I think that when we, when we start to talk about how there's an equivalent metric that could be used for planning and could be used for buying and could be used for how you look at optimization, all these sort of like technical nuances that the layperson doesn't care about, the ultimate outcome is, how do I get the thing that I want most efficiently? Right? How, if you're the CMO and your, your job is to sell sprockets, you want to do so at the most efficient rate possible. And if somebody's telling you that, well, the current metrics that we're looking at don't correlate to selling sprockets, as the CMO, you're going to go, what the hell are you looking at those things? That amount of dissonance is something that I still find baffling and you know, agree that you know, th- there are, are vastly better ways of looking at effectiveness in real time than the majority of what brands are looking at right now.
4: I think one of the issues that, that I really ran into as I was codifying myself as the the programmatic CPG guy at the agency is that offline sales is a lot of the stuff that, that I had to like navigate through and what plugs in to be the solve for a CPG marketer uh, is an MMM. Uh, another system that's built upon data inputs to generate a defined data output. I inherently think all MMMs are, are biased towards Whoever it benefits, and we'll talk about incentives again for the large, you know, snack brand that I was working on. You know, there were, there was a lot of frustration with, with the the MMM in terms of how the MMM was even equating success, and it was all based on the impression. So for our programmatic buys, whether it was OLV or uh, you know digital display um, and even like social, it was all based on like how cheap can we get a CPM? You want cheap CPMS? Like all right. Let's do it. I don't really think that like a CPG company necessarily needs to capture your attention. Potentially, they don't need to convince you of why buy, well, say Oreos or, or Chips Ahoy instead of Milano's or, or whatever thing else. You know, they just want to make sure that like that the last thing that you remember, or the, maybe the first thing that you remember when you're in the aisle uh, is one of those two brands. And that's, you know, I think very different than just give me a cheap CPM.
1: There's no way to put salience in a, in a row, in a column of a spreadsheet. So people optimize to whatever they can measure. And that just happens to be cheapest CPM possible, cheapest completion rate possible. So the, the hope is you give people a better metric, which is actually correlated to outcomes. And they'll start to optimize to that.
4: I was sitting at me and was like, wait, how is the MMM actually measuring us? Oh, it's that. Okay. We can do that. And not only can we do that, we can game to that number. Yeah. And we can make historical like, improvements year over year. We actually got our wrist slapped a little bit because like, we just came in and we like, parachuted in and we literally fixed everything day one, which was a problem for us you know, in terms of year two because they're like, well, where's the improvements? like, no, we did them all last year. I, That's why I you remember. had a 23% you know, decrease or you know, improvement of whatever we're looking at. Like, there, there's no more.
3: I remember thinking, thank God I was only on the pitch team for this brand. I I don't know if it's you or Palmer, one of the two of you sent out just a note on the CPMs that were immediately registered for that brand. And I remember thinking, hey, I was shocked how low they were, which is, look, that was the incentive. And so that's only praise. (laughs) Like It wasn't the right thing to do, but it was what we were asked to do. I remember being stunned at my computer, like looking at those numbers, $1.98 CPM. The son of a bitches really did it. Good luck in year too.
4: We checked all the boxes. We had yeah. all of our, you know, like uh, in terms of like brand
1: safety, oh, ad absolutely. fraud, like all, like they were all in place. That's the risk, right? Because some, because some people now think that quality is brand safe, viewable and not fraud and maybe on target, right? And, and that's not quality. That's just like hy- hygiene, right? That doesn't tell you how much you should pay for something. That tells you if you should buy it or not. So I think that the, the real opportunity in, in attention and, and any sort of, sort of new metric that, that's better than, than viewability and completions is that it's, it's granular, right? Like it's not binary. So a good metric will allow you to understand how much more or how much less you should pay for something, not whether or not you should buy it.
3: So if someone wants to get very into marketing, the high quality attention, attention in general, um, the right kind of attention for their brand, what are the steps to studying the blade and beginning the quest?
1: It's not so hard. It's just do an audit, right? Look at look at where your ads are running and work with somebody who can tell you the true quality of that media, right? If it's somebody who really looks at disinformation versus brand safety, right? That's a much more important thing to look at. If it's somebody, somebody like us who looks at the actual, atten- the potential for attention that's coming from your media versus sort of hygienic viewability. I, it's not hard. It's just a matter of, like opening the covers and looking and seeing where, where your ads are running. And, and a lot of people don't want to do that. I think they're afraid of what they're going to find.
4: How do you
3: solve the ultimate problem and, and cleanse both your own intentions and the intentions around you? And I'm, I'm thinking of this because I, I was recently counseling someone. You know, one thing I cautioned them about, and we weren't even talking about this. We weren't even talking about attention or anything. They are talking about running an app and needing to grow it. And I was like, your biggest problem is you are going to run into so many people who, on paper, do not have your best intent in mind. And they're very nice people, and they don't even understand that they don't intend to help you. I think that's a big problem in advertising, is there are a lot of people, and this maybe will more crystallize and make a little less mean my good faith, bad faith thing. I think there are a lot of people in various advertising and tech service organizations who think they intend to help, but if they analyze their own intentions and incentive alignment, they wouldn't. So,
1: I mean, this is something that you could, you might be able to pin on the brand because they're creating the ultimate incentive, which is get me cheapest reach possible, right? But I don't think you can, I don't think you can blame them too much because in TV, all reach was was was, was homogenous, and in digital, it's not. So it's just it's just a matter of the measurement catching up to the fragmentation of the media.
3: Do you think there's any any sort of shining path to uh, get through that?
1: Yeah, it's it's the rigor of evidence-based marketing, right? It's actually looking at the cost of incremental outcomes, and when you do that, and when you actually take take the time to do that, then media which looks expensive in the beginning is no longer uh, expensive, right? It's the cheap media that actually doesn't drive incremental outcomes, and is maybe just being targeted towards people who are going to convert anyways, like the wall gardens do, or being cookie bombed, like you, like you find on the web, you you know, like you'll, you'll actually find incremental lift from high quality, expensive media.
3: And it's funny because I think that's so instinctive and something I've talked a lot about recently is you can buy high quality digital audio media self-service now and it's accessible to small brands. And my experience in sort of shopping this around is like there's excitement and fear in equal measure. There are a lot of people at like small brands who are like, oh, this could be really good. if, If I could actually, you know, stitch in high quality digital audio just as a human who instinctually understands persuasion, that sounds really good and effective to me. I think I could cut a really good audio ad I think I could explain the whole product and be catchy. If you bring in, though, like, well, you know, those audio CPMs are $25. There's this weird, like, I know it's wrong, but I sure could have 10 times the digital video impressions. And it's wild how many people, especially a lot that I see running or launching small brands, have this really good instinct where they're like, I absolutely do not need a GDN retargeting buy. I need to cut a high-quality audio ad. And, and I can actually get it out there and target it even as a small business. And then all of a sudden, like, here come the metrics and they're like, it's too
2: expensive. <laughs> I'm just yeah, like- look at, Try working at a large organization. We, You start getting, I mean, this is gonna get heady. You start getting procurement and conversations around looking at just the cost of inventory and CPMs. You're, you're toast. You're just never gonna win an argument with people like that that are looking at just effective rate reductions Against consistent media types, right? Like, and that's how. That's frankly why businesses go in review. Brands put their business in review because some snake was snake oil salesman at a at a in at a, the agency BD gets in the ear of the CMO and is like, "Oh, th- those are the rates you're paying from from this guys. We'll get you forty percent cheaper." And then the procurement guys hear that and they're like, wow that sounds amazing." And then all of a sudden, the the account goes in review and they move over to another agency. The, the challenge with that is just that, like, what's the value that they're actually getting in return? What does it mean to the business? And nobody really has a good answer to that.
1: All sorts of nasty stuff happens when you have opaque quality, right? When you have opaque quality, that, that sort of creates the opportunity for kickbacks, right? It, it, it creates the opportunity uh, for people to be delivered something that is not a, you know not as good as what they paid for, and they won't know it. Uh, it, it makes it really hard to judge the performance of media buyers, right? Because if you're a media buyer today, the only thing you can really be judged on is what was the cheap CPM you got, right? So so that's the incentive that's based on you. And so that's what you're going to do. If the if the incentive and the metric that was used to, to, to gauge the performance of a media buyer was how much quality media did you get, right? Or, or if there's some metric that would, that would measure the quality of media, like what was your cost per thousand of those things rather than sort of impressions or, or viewability or completion. So
2: I mean we uh, hear from clients, how do we know that what we're buying is good? Like just full stop, right? I don't care if it's cheap, but like is it good? Does it do anything? Right? We like you work with a client and they still have the question of how is the media that I'm putting them into market? how is it doing right now? I don't know how to answer that question. Like, these are fundamental questions that people still don't know how to answer. And yet they're seduced by these things like brand safety. They're seduced by things like low CPMs. It's just like, there's just so much incongruity in those two arguments.
1: Well, yeah, it shows up on a spreadsheet a lot easier than actual quality and and, and outcomes.
3: been another episode bumper intro and outro music as always courtesy of the immortal and immutable jonathan Campo. church girls noise act brooklyn new york but uh zach and mark thanks for coming on really appreciate it
1: thanks guys thanks for having us
2: our pleasure